0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 255, The Marines of Wake Island Don't Know Quit. Last time, Guam had fallen quickly to the Japanese. But would Wake go the same way? It seems so, as Lieutenant Commander Matsuda and his 36 bombers, coming up from the marshals, were able to take out the eight Wildcat fighters parked on the ground in mere minutes. And of the four in the air during the attack, one was damaged upon landing. That left the Marines three fighters to take on the enemy, who would surely return. Still on that same day, December 8th, the civilians got to work, repairing damage as best they could, making new foxholes, along with trenches to give the defenders the ability to fight while moving. The other priority was to repair the phone lines, as most of them were above ground and now damaged. The last, but not least, priority was to take supplies and bury them around the island, so no one bomb strike would leave the defenders hapless. All this was done while scouts sat atop the 200-foot water tower, looking out for enemy planes or ships. As the sun came up the next day, December ninth, Marine Major Devereaux hoped to have a few surprises for the enemy upon their return. First, a mobile reserve of 12 men were put together and given machine guns and a truck. Their job was to rush around the island like firemen and deal with any hot spots that came up throughout the day. Next, several of the contractor Dean Teeter's civilian workers volunteered to fight alongside the marines. Hence, one three-inch gun, which had been abandoned, was once again manned, with a marine to supervise. But the second biggest surprise was that the airstrip, should the enemy try to fly in infantry, was mined with explosives. And just to make sure the bombs would detonate, three separate groups of wires led to activation switches. Yet, Devereaux's ace was that by 5.30 a.m. of that morning, 2nd Lieutenant Kinney and Technical Sergeant Hamilton had repaired the 8th and least damaged Wildcat, which meant Major Putnam, commanding the fighters, now had four planes to harass any returning bombers. And sure enough, at 11.45 a.m., 27 Japanese bombers, again under Lieutenant Commander Matsuda, came in from the south. As the sky was clear, there was nothing for it but for the bombers to come straight in at 8,000 feet. But at least this was a good range for the 3-inch AA guns. Also, Putnam sent up two of his four fighters. The guns of the Japanese bombers swung back and forth, trying to take the Americans out of the sky. But the Wildcats were too nimble. Moving in, one of the fighters got a solid shot at one of the bombers on the end of one of the V formations and sent it into the sea. Yet the other bombers managed to fulfill their mission. A gasoline truck was hit, sending smoke and flame high into the air. The three-man crew in the cab disappeared. Other strikes damaged a few 3-inch guns and one 5-inch gun, situated at the island's lowest point on its southeast corner. Continuing north, the bombers made for the hospital at Camp 2 on the western edge of the largest island, just east of Peel Island. The strike there was straight and true, gutting the structure and killing four Marines and 55 civilians. The staff dragged out a few survivors. Only then did the bombers turn and head south, but the Marines noticed that five of them were trailing black smoke, which lifted the spirits of the men on the ground. Suddenly, though, one of the damaged bombers exploded, its carcass plunging into the sea. To this, the Marines and civilians gave a cheer. Obviously, some AA gun, or one of those Wildcats, got in a shot. With the latest attack over and repair underway, Devereaux did his part by studying the enemy's flight path and Targets hit. His conclusion was that Battery E, again on the southeast corner of the island that protected the airstrip from the south, was a priority target, and he was told that one bomber had circled that point several times after the bombing there, obviously taking photos. Though it would mean some of his men not getting much sleep, Major Devereaux ordered that the guns of Battery E be moved and in their place fake guns set up. With this being done, two new aid stations were set up, using some of the bomb-proof shelters constructed by the civilians with their bulldozers. As the Marines worked, their banter let Devereux know their morale was still high. The Major knew this was important as the odds against them were still daunting. On December 10th, the third day of the attack, the Japanese bombers returned with nine of them going after the fake guns of Battery E. And staying at 18,000 feet, they were relatively safe from the 3-inch AA guns below. The logs made to look like barrels were soon fragments. But this sleight of hand by the Americans did not save other areas that were targeted. Wilkes Island, on the southern end of the Sideways U, was hit for the first time, and it might have been that surprise that allowed them to take out two 5-inch naval guns and one 3-inch AA gun. Also, a 125-ton pile of dynamite was hit, which ignited a massive explosion. But strangely, only one Marine was killed, and damage to the other guns was minimal. Besides the fake Battery E location, Battery A, also at Peacock Point, was targeted by nine bombers. Yet, for some reason, damage there was slight. During this third bombing raid, this time Putnam sent up all four Wildcats. Captain Henry Elrod was soon on the tail of one of the G3M bombers and laid into it with his guns. Soon the plane was smoking and leaving its formation. For the last time. Yet the other nearby bombers were using this time to shoot at Elrod, but the pilot pulled up out of their line of fire and started shooting a second bomber. Soon it too was heading for the waves. Watching this, one of the marines on the ground shouted, Hammering Hank is sure giving them hell. And the name Hammering Hank was born. When the Japanese pilots returned to the marshals, they told the commander of the Japanese invasion force, Rear Admiral Kajioka, of their destruction of the island's defenses, the massive explosion on Wilkes Island, and the supposed destruction of Battery E. Hence, the Admiral decided they would move out that very night with his fleet for a night attack on December 11th. As the invasion fleet just beyond the horizon, started to move in, it was spotted by lookouts at 3 a.m. Devon Row was awakened. Also spotting the approaching ships were two American submarines, Triton and Tambor. As Kajioka and his force moved in and started loading men onto their 47-foot-long landing craft, he found that the sea was not on his side. High waves pushed the craft about and men were thrown clear of it into the water. So not only were they behind schedule, but their backup plan of having to use the crews from the six destroyers to storm the beaches was considered. Kajioka wanted to have 150 men land on Wilkes Island and 300 more on the southern end of Wake, near the airstrip. As surprise was most likely lost... Due to the extra time it took to load the men, the Japanese destroyers and the flagship light cruiser Yubari moved closer to compensate by starting a preparatory bombardment at 5.22 a.m. Yet their aim was off. The Americans on the southern shore, though eager to fight back, were ordered to stay silent. As the invading ships moved closer, 7,000 yards away, 6,500 yards away. The Marines, but only because of Devereaux, did not return fire. Kajioka needed the enemy to fire back so he could pinpoint his guns. But the Americans weren't playing along. So the Japanese fleet turned and came back, this time to within 4,500 yards. Now the American guns had the range they needed to be effective. At 6.15 a.m., the crews were told to open fire, and as the tension had built up over the last hour, some of the Marines even called their commander a little son of a bitch, the men poured shells into the enemy vessels. Right away, fountains of water rose around the Ubari, Kajioka's flagship, itself just offshore of Peacock Point on the southeast corner of Wake the ship's gunners saw the flash and returned fire. Though their initial shots were close, their remaining attempts were moving away from the American guns. Rear Admiral Kajioka realized his mistake and ordered the ship to leave the area. Full speed was also given. But their position was too close to the American guns. It would take time to get out of their range. As Battery Commander Lieutenant Berenger put it, the first salvo from our guns, which hit her, was fired at a range of 5,500 to 6,000 yards. Both shells entered her port side, about midships, just above the waterline. The ship immediately belched smoke and steam through the side, and her speed diminished. At 7,000 yards, two more hit her in about the same place. She turned to starboard, again trying to hide in the smoke. It was then that a destroyer put itself in between the American guns and the wounded flagship, laying out a smoke screen. But the men of Battery A were equally willing to fire at this newcomer, so a shell was sent into the destroyer's forecastle. The destroyer also made best speed as it departed. Meanwhile, as the flagship was being chased away to the southeast, on the southwestern corner of Wilkes Island, the lower part of the U, Battery L was having its own success. This despite not having their range-finding equipment, which had been damaged in a previous bombing. Lieutenant McAllister there eyeballed the range of the destroyer Hayate to be about 4,500 yards, and he had his crew send a shell. It missed, but he yelled out adjustments. This process continued until five inch shells started landing true. One shot punched through the hull and must have landed near the depth charges, for a massive explosion erupted, with the ship being torn in half. It's doubtful that any of the 176 men on board survived, but if they did, they were soon found by the sharks. At this, the battery crew stopped firing and cheered their success. But there were other destroyers within range, which is why Platoon Sergeant Henry Bedell yelled, Knock it off, you bastards, and get back on the guns. What do you think this is, a ball game? The marines picked up where they left off. A second destroyer was hit, which led to a serious fire on board. Then a transport was hit. Yet all the remaining Japanese vessels, made it safely away pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba By 7.10 a.m., the Japanese ships that had been attacking Wilkes Island had sailed north. Now, they were in range of the guns on Peel Island, on the northern end of the U, at Toki Point. There, Battery B's 5-inch guns, commanded by Lieutenant Kessler, fired at the destroyers, the transports, and two light cruisers. At 10,000 yards away, it took 10 shots before a destroyer was hit. When a fire was the result, Kessler had his guns moved to another target. But that was when the recoil cylinder filling pipe malfunctioned on gun two. Nothing to do about it now, Kessler sent the crew to help with gun number one. For whatever reason, the Japanese were using armor-piercing shells instead of high explosives. At one point during the exchange, one of the Americans watched as one shell was observed to fly down the open path between the two parallel lines of ammunition passers to explode beyond without harming anyone. Another ten shells saw a second destroyer hit. At this, the remaining destroyers laid down smoke, and all enemy vessels turned away from the islands. They were now relatively safe from the American guns, which did not mean they were out of harm's way. Just overhead, the four operational Wildcats were about to take their turn. The Japanese naval force moved out to the southwest, and though it had rained the night before, the early morning was becoming clear. Major Putnam, in one of the Wildcats, was joined by pilots Captain Hammering Hank Elrod, Frank Thawren, and Herbert Fruehler. Unlike the American air crews, the Japanese men aboard the various vessels were not trained for accuracy, but rather volume, as it was expected this would win out over attacking aircraft, and the Americans knew this. Rear Admiral Kajioka ordered his fleet to maximum speed, but this was relative, considering he had several damaged vessels in tow. Putnam was eager to engage, but was determined not to be fooled a second time. Before the four Wildcats swung towards the enemy ships, they circled the island Once more, to make sure no Japanese bombers were coming in from a different direction. With the skies clear, the Japanese bombers did not have escorts, Putnam and his crew raced to the southwest. The Major went in first, coming out of the sun to maximize surprise. Going after the damaged flagship, the light cruiser Yubari, soon his bullets were ripping into the ship's bridge. The three other fighters went after the light cruiser Tenru, hoping that their leader's attack on the flagship would distract the Japanese soldiers manning the anti-artillery. The Wildcats strafed the ship and used their two 100-pound bombs to damage its deck and torpedo battery. Having used their bombs, the Wildcats returned to wake, refueled, rearmed, and tore back into the sky. And they would do this over and over, inflicting damage but also receiving it. After a few more sorties, two of the fighters had to remain behind. It was hoped they could be repaired, but the other two planes managed nine trips that morning. When they were done, the Americans had used up twenty thousand rounds of fifty caliber machine gun ammunition and twenty one hundred pound bombs. With each landing, the crews were getting faster at readying the planes to re-engage the enemy. And to keep them sharp, and probably to reward their ability of keeping the four Wildcats battle-worthy as long as they had, Thurin and Fruler hopped out and let Kinney and Hamilton take over. On Hemring Hanks' last sortie, he went after the Kisaragi, thinking it was the almost identical Yubari. Coming in, he let his fifty cow brownings rip and scored with his bombs. One of them went through the deck and started an internal fire. Normally a death sentence for a ship. Yet the Kisagari stopped, dealt with the fire, and then moved on, though even slower than before. Yet the ship's crew got their revenge. As Hank had been coming in, his plane's oil system was hit by a 77 millimeter machine gun. From that second on, his engine was on borrowed time. Knowing this, Hank made a straight line for Wake with his engine locking up just as he came upon the shoreline. Hank brought the now-dead plane in on the beach, stopping when it hit several boulders. Incredibly, he was unharmed, just sorry that he had lost them another plane. Meanwhile, Kinney lined up his own attack on the same ship, but just as he dove, the destroyer blew apart. Orange flames shot skyward. Hank's bomb had taken a while, but the depth charges below finally gave in to the heat of the fire. All 167 men on board were lost. Fruller managed to drop his bomb on the stern of the transport Congo Maru, causing a large fire, but the soldiers on board, showing their own bravery, fought to put it out. In exchange, his plane took two solid hits, forcing Fruller to return to wake. Putnam and Hamilton made one last run with the last two fighters and damaged the light cruiser Tatsuta and patrol boat 33. After that, Putnam put an end to their sorties, not wanting to risk the two planes further, for the Japanese would be back. The Marines were obviously excited by the damage they were able to inflict relative to the number of operational fighters remaining. But this elation was cut short. When 17 more bombers came in at around 9.30 that morning, the two waves came in from the northeast hoping to achieve surprise. But Devon had scouts posted who spotted the approaching planes. And as luck would have it, Kinney and 2nd Lieutenant Carl Davidson had just taken off to patrol the skies. The two closest batteries opened up, and whether it was planned or not, the rising shells came so intensely the bomber crews were distracted. This allowed the two pilots to get in close before opening up with their 50 caliber machine guns, which sank into the rear of the nearest bombers. Yet one gunner stayed calm and wet after Kinney, sending a bullet through Kinney's canopy, where it smashed the left lens of his goggle, seared his temple, and exited through the back of the canopy. But Kinney would live to fight another day. The bombers, hit hard by the AA fire, and the two fighters turned to leave, with 11 of the 17 now damaged, and two, but probably three, shot down, as Japanese records would later show that three bomb crews had been lost. As it had worked out well before, Devereux had one of the batteries moved, getting help from the 200 civilian workers. Hey everyone, Ray here. Have you heard the expression, less is more? That's so true in our overstimulated world. Or, as the folks who make the Ridge Wallet say, cluttered life, cluttered mind. Well, the first step to getting decluttered is taking a look at your wallet. That leather bifold thing bulging out of your pocket. It's more like a suitcase, right? Old receipts, spent gift cards. No, you need, you want the Ridge Wallet. A minimalist front pocket wallet that will be the last wallet you'll ever buy. The Ridge helps you carry less, but always what you need. It looks nothing like a traditional wallet. Two metal plates of titanium, carbon fiber, or aluminum. So there's an option for everyone. Bound together by a durable elastic band. It's slim, FRID blocking, and lifetime guaranteed. And comes in a dozen different styles and colors. I have the titanium gunmetal and the carbon fiber wallets, so I can switch it up whenever I want. Now, I carry what I need in my front pocket. And the Ridge wallet is so slim, it seems to disappear. But all my valuables are right there. And for the ladies, again, you can have all your necessities in one small sleek container. Join the more than 250,000 men and women who have switched and decluttered their lives. Get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping by going to RidgeWallet.com WW2. That's RidgeWallet.com WW2 and use code WW2. With the sun starting to set, one of the Wildcats was sent up this time piloted by 2nd Lieutenant David Clywer. The Marines on the ground weren't happy with this choice, as Clywer came from a family of religious pacifists. The other pilots were not sure of what he would do, and they didn't have the fuel, ammo, or bombs to waste on this untried man. At 4.40 p.m., 25 miles southwest of Wake, The pilot came upon a surfaced enemy-type L-4 submarine, probably charging its batteries. Without hesitating, Clywer dove down out of the sun and strafed the exposed sub. Turning hard, he came down again, this time using his two bombs. But he went so low that when the bombs exploded, some of its shrapnel rose and went through his wings. The two bombs landed within 15 feet of the sub. The sub's hull was battered. The pacifist that everyone was worried about rose and then dove again and again at the sub until all of his ammo was gone. Only then did he return to wake. Reporting this action, Putnam took the other fighter and went after the sub, but when he came upon the spot, All he found was an oil slick. The sub had submerged, but was so damaged and unresponsive that it collided with another sub, sending Klywer's sub to the bottom. Again, the Marines celebrated, and Devereaux let them have their way for a while. He and his men knew the enemy would be back on the 12th, but then rain squalls came in, early that morning, and it looked as if the Marines would get a break. They were wrong.